framework of the book of Revelation um, and other books. Obviously, we're going to be dabbling in Daniel, 1 Thessalonians, dealing with some of the prophets that spoke on this subject. And I think one of the things you need to realize first is Revelation is broken into three sections. So this is a simple part, past, present, future. Chapter 1 is the past, chapters 2 and 3 is the present, chapters 4 through 22 is the future, depending on what perception you have of the scriptures and how you have nailed them down. The date was written somewhere around 90 to 95 AD, uh, and one of the things, uh, many have seen this book as a book of apocalypse and doom. Um, actually, the emphasis on this book is victory and freedom. Uh, so we want to remember that, and we want to keep that in mind as we kind of walk through this. Sometimes, too, you'll see commentaries that will say revelation, the revelation of John. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ yes. to John. So I always want people to remember that. I think sometimes we take away the emphasis regarding this book and really what it's all about. Um, forgive me if I don't keep up with my slides, but uh, uh, as I go through and uh, you're taking notes, tell me, I'll just go back and, and pull them up again. The Revelation, the book of Revelation is both poetic and prophetic. Poetic meaning, if you ever look at your scriptures and wonder, well, where's the poetic sections of scripture? You'll all, always notice that the poetic uh, parts are always indented. They've done that for us. When they translated and put the scriptures together, it's always indented. Go back to the book of Psalms and you'll see that most of the Psalms are indented. That means it's a poetic style of writing. Often it was probably used as a song. Um, and some of the songs we sing on Sunday actually come straight out of the Psalms. Uh, if you go into the book of Job, Job is written in a, in a poetic style. Uh, so it's, it's a story. It's kind of like, to think of it this way, think of it as a story that parents are telling their children. And it's being carried on from one generation to the next. Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament. Um, it was not completely new just to the New Testament. So it has deep, deep roots in the old. And uh, you, again, going back to Daniel, you can go back to Ezekiel uh, and various sections in the Old Testament that bring up this day that uh, really nobody knew much about, but they knew of it in two ways. There was a day coming that the Messiah would appear and a day coming that the Messiah would appear. Um, so that's the best way to kind of see how people anticipated this uh, this moment when Jesus would come. Now, uh, the first chapter of Revelation is divided into three sections, which is an introduction, a greeting, and a description of Jesus Christ. So um, as we go through this, you'll understand that the, the book of Revelation is kind of an unveiling um, What's the name of that game where you have to pick a door? Oh, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. You know, and they always pick a door, and they open the door, and there's this unveiling uh, of a donkey or a great prize. Who knows what? Well, that's what the book of Revelation is. It's really a disclosure. It's an unveiling, and it actually is where we get the word apocalypse. Um, so it has this, it can have this chaotic catastrophic meaning behind it. Um, but as we go through it, um, 
understand, and I shared this earlier, uh, it is uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, not John. And so as we go through it, if you have your Bibles, great. If you don't, um, that's fine too. Uh, it'll give you a chance to kind of go back and, and study a little bit of what's in it. So as you look down through the book of Revelation, let me just give you kind of an overview as we go through the first chapter. Um, the first one uses the word servants. So the question is, is who is that referring to in the book of Revelation? Um, John's writing. John has no idea really who this is going to go to because he's exiled to an island, Patmos. And so I'm sure he's thinking, well, I'm going to write this down, but who knows who's going to read it. But uh, he writes it knowing that probably there will be individuals that will have a chance to read this. Then in verse 3, we see the words blessed, which anytime you see the word blessed, specifically in the New Testament, it actually means happy. Um, so happy, not happy like, oh, I got a birthday gift. Happy as in glory. Um, so we'll see that. And so as we go through this, why would anybody be blessed? by the words of this prophecy, because it does seem a little bit doom and gloom. Well, it, it's because it's the revealing of Jesus Christ, um, him coming again. And the church today, unfortunately, they, in many cases, more so probably the mainline church, they don't talk about that much. They don't talk about Christ coming again. In fact, I've had some... I guess they call themselves scholars, basically say they're not sure of the usefulness of the book of Revelation. Um, so they they kind of pass by it. Um, most of them don't preach on it. I've never really preached on it, but I've taught on it. Um, uh, so it's kind of a tenuous issue that some people just either they don't know enough about it, so they don't speak on it, or they're afraid of it. And maybe they just assume it's not true. Um so as we go through this, there's some, if you go down to, hang on just a second. Verse four, in this section, we see there's a greeting. John says, grace and peace to you. And then he talks about the sevenfold spirit. Has anybody ever had somebody explain the sevenfold spirit? It, it's kind of strange, um, but it actually goes back to the Old Testament. Um, so there is this, this thing that we need to understand about what is the importance and why would John bring up the sevenfold spirit? Um, well, you have to go back to Zechariah chapter 4. Let me read it for you. It says, Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. That actually is a description. Anytime you see a description of fire or light, it is a description of God's glory, the presence of God's glory. You have to go back to the Old Testament. And you remember when um, Elijah was on the mountain with the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah. And that whole storyline kind of unfolded. And, and remember, he said, whomever, whomever's God reveals himself in fire, that is the God of Israel. 
And so the prophets of Baal, it says they started dancing around their altar. Remember, there hadn't been rain in the land for years. And so they start dancing and it says they even cut themselves. And how many remember the Living Bible? We don't read much. The Living Bible says uh, that Elijah began to taunt them. He said, maybe your God is on the toilet. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is, but I like it. So anyway, uh, Elijah does begin to taunt them because nothing is happening. And then finally he gets up and he erects this altar. And then he says, he puts the sacrifice on the altar. And then he says, pour water over it. And then pour more water. Now, why does he do that? Well, there's no water. So what they're using is a precious commodity. So they pour water over it. And then Elijah begins to pray. And it says that fire came down from heaven and completely consumed the altar. Anytime you see God, especially in the Old Testament, you will see him as a description of fire. In the tabernacle, when God's glory would descend, it would be descending in the form of fire, the burning bush. And often, whenever you would see that, that's what we call a theophany, uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ is what we call that. So when Moses was at the burning bush, it says that the bush spoke to him. That is the word of God speaking to him. Who was that? It was Jesus, pre-incarnate, speaking to Moses and giving him direction. So whenever you see that or have an appearance, you need to understand that we often, anytime God speaks, it is the word of God speaking to us. So that's what we have going on here as well with John. Um, so then there's this sevenfold spirit. Now, you need to understand the importance of numbers in the Bible. Um, I, I love numbers. I love the idea of that numbers, numbers work on there's a purpose. God is a God that is numerical. And so whenever you see numbers in the Bible, there's a purpose behind it. Well, the number seven is the number of completeness. Um, there's a, there is a uh, number that is that comes up often when we talk about apocalypse, and that's the number 666. Some don't remember that there's also the number seven, which is the number of God. Um, so whenever you see the number seven, it's the number of completeness. completeness. The number three is the number of perfection. So if God's number is seven, and you see it three times, seven, 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 what you've got is complete perfection. Ooh. However, what's the number of man? Does anybody know? Six. six. So anytime you see the number six, that number is an incomplete number because of our sin. So when you have 666, you've got complete imperfection. That's why that number holds such value. Um, so those are some things to kind of keep in mind as you kind of walk through this. Now, um, I want to tell you too, just as a side note, um, I've got like over 50 pages of notes. I'm not certain I'm going to get you through all of this. Maybe I can give you a little prelude and get you kick-started, but uh, uh, hopefully that will be something that you that you'll. You're good. Yeah, I think so. Is that better? Okay. Good. I have to yell. Not a yeller. What's that? It is, and I'm not a yeller. Well, unless it's my boys. Oh, speaking of that, I guess I should have given you a little family history. Um, I'm married. I have three daughters that are 29, 27, 25. 
and two boys that are five and two. Um, uh, how I'm not completely gray, I don't know. Um, so yeah, yeah. And you'll see them around here, uh, the two boys that we adopted. And uh, they're a blast. I love them to death. They drive me crazy, but I do love them. Um, so yeah, you'll see them kind of meandering around here. And um, Anyway, so what John saw, he saw seven golden lampstands. And so what actually is being suggested here is the sevenfold spirit. The fire is a description of the presence of God or the spirit of Jesus of Jesus Christ through this Holy Spirit. So you have this sevenfold spirit. Now, what is that sevenfold spirit? Because there is a description that you'll get as you go into the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. Let me make sure. No. Here's the description. Isaiah writes, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So often, and I've had to do a little bit of study on this as well, the math doesn't add up. That's six. So what is the seventh? Well, most individuals, scholars, commentary writers would tell you that the spirit of the Lord rested upon him was the seventh or the presence. Um, so some don't give a description. Others do. But that is the sevenfold spirit. That same spirit was the spirit that was on Jesus Christ, that sevenfold spirit. Um, and then John from there has this description of the Ancient of Days, as he's coming down, and what he saw, he saw this. He saw this individual in Revelation 1 as somebody that had uh, uh, head and hair as white as wool. Um, what is symbolic of this? Well, it's talking about wisdom and dignity. Um, I'm getting more gray, slowly. Uh, my boys have caused a lot of that. Those of you, you remember, I mean, growing up when, you know, you start to get gray and it's like, oh, I don't want to get gray. But actually getting gray is a form of dignity. Um, and, it, and it should be. It should be something that we hold up. Well, that's the same thing. This hair as white as wool was wisdom and dignity. Um, if you go on, then he says that he saw eyes like blazing fire. Now, what's symbolic of this? Well, it's called penetrating insight. It knows all things. That it's pure knowledge. Um have you ever wondered why uh, when people describe hell, they, they call it a place of unquenchable fire? Well, there's a reason. Um, anytime you see God judging the sins of Israel, he would judge the sins with what? Fire. Fire is used as a constant reminder of the absence and the judgment of God. So that's why hell is described that way. Um, then he goes on and says, uh, and tell me if I'm going too fast. And if you have questions, just put your hand up. If I can't answer it, what I will tell you is I can't answer that. Um, I don't know, uh, but I'll do the best that I can. Feet like burnished bronze. What is symbolic of this? Judgment or destruction. So we have this, these metals and these descriptions, physical descriptions that are being given that all have a meaning behind them. And each of them have a meaning behind this ancient of days that's revealing himself so that you have this judgment or destruction that's coming. Um, again, this is a great picture that John is having, but also a scary one. Can you imagine? 
having this big screen up on, you know, on the on the sky, and he's seeing all this thing, all these things happening that he can't describe. He gives what he sees, but there may very well have been much more behind it that he couldn't understand. So then it says that he saw a voice like rushing water. Um, and as we see Jesus again, he is the water of life. He is, he, he is the, uh, we see that constantly through the Old Testament to New Testament, Red Sea crossing all the way up to John and his baptism, all those things. Water was always used as a, a cleansing agent. So when the Egypt, the Hebrew people left Egypt, they didn't just cross the Red Sea because the Red Sea was in front of them and they needed to get away from the Egyptians. It was symbolic that God was saying, you're leaving oppression and you're going into the promised land or close to the promised land and you're crossing water when you get there. That same illustration is later used in the New Testament. When John was baptizing, he was saying, baptize for the forgiveness of your sins. You're leaving oppression and you're coming into new life. So that whole theme is all through the Old Testament. That's what John is starting to see. And then lastly, he sees uh, seven stars, which are symbolic of these seven churches that eventually John begins to write about in chapter two, talking about Christ's control over or mastery of the churches. Um, how many have read chapters two and three of Revelation about the churches? There's seven of them. Ever gotten a little confused about what's this all about? Well, we're going to touch on that today um, because uh, the churches, there's a lot of different um, theories about the churches. Um, some are, I think, are like, oh, that makes sense. And others are, oh, that doesn't make sense. Um, but there's something that we need to be aware of. And so as we talk about the churches, understand. Oops, no, I didn't. I missed one. We have to go back. We're talking about the past, the present, the future. So chapter one is the past. Chapters two and three, the present. And chapters four through 22, the future. Again, depending on your theory of the book of Revelation. Some believe, and we'll talk about this later, that all the events of Revelation have already happened. They're done. Um, others believe past, present, future, that some have taken place. Some are present, past, present, constant. Others are future. Again, I'm here to just help you understand that there are different vantage points regarding this issue. So, those are things we need to remember. So as we begin to look at the book of Revelation, remember first it is a Christ-centered book. We can't forget that. It is about Jesus Christ and his return and Jesus coming back for his people. Um, that's the beauty of it. And I love the, all the different descriptions. I, I constantly go back and I want to pull out the apocalyptic side. But I, the thing that really kind of stares me in the face is God's grace all through. Even in this apocalyptic, doom-filled book, it would seem, it's just God's grace everywhere I turn. That he is doing everything he can to bring his creation back to him. So it is also an open book. Uh, it's open to interpretation. It's, it's a book that is open to, hmm, how do I explain this? Again, we don't want to become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And I would, I, I would tell even the church that I served that the role of the church, I believe, can be centered on one thing, and that's discipleship. We are called to disciple 
and reach the lost. And the best way of doing that is when we equip, as, as James would say, equip those around us and give them the structure of the, of the scriptures and help them know how to reach their neighbor. Um, I've had people, I'm, years ago, um, I had a guy come up to me, a young guy, and he said to me, I have a good friend that's coming to church this Sunday. Would you preach a message, on evan- an evangelistic message? And he said, he's not a believer. And I looked at him and I said, no. But I will teach you how to reach your friend for Jesus Christ. And his first look was a little like, really? You're my pastor and you're not going to preach? I said, I'm not going to twist and shape what I preach on Sunday morning so I can try to pinpoint somebody in the congregation. But I will disciple you and equip you so you can reach your unchurched neighbor. And uh, so he got the point. Um, And uh, I would say that today. It's like I'm not here to constantly preach this evangelistic message so that by chance your neighbor who might be there can maybe give their life to Jesus Christ. Um, I've said for a long time that, and I grew up in a church that had constant altar calls. Anybody else, you know, go to the altar, kneel at the altar. Um, that's where I've, I've said for a long time, it's like, don't forgive him, Lord. He's leaking. Um, he's a leaky pot or she's a leaky pot. I've seen the church, I believe, leave many, many spiritual infants at the altar to die just because we have been so ingrained on getting people to the altar, but we don't know what to do with them afterwards. What we do with them afterwards is disciple, walk, we disciple, we walk alongside of them. Great. You know, it's, it's amazing when you, you go to somebody, I have a men's group that right now we're on hiatus, but uh, I have a men's group. Actually, Russ Tibbet started a men's group. And uh, I went to him one day and I said, hey, I, I got a, a list of guys that I really need somebody to just disciple. And uh, one day he came into my office and he said, do you really see me doing this? And I'm like, I wouldn't ask you if I didn't see you doing it. And uh, he go, and I said, do you want to do it? He goes, I'm so excited that I can spill into these guys, but it was new to him. And I said, I don't care if it's new to you. I will give you every resource that I possibly have. These guys need somebody to walk alongside of them. And I'll tell you something, the church today, in my estimation, is lacking, severely lacking in male leadership. We are definitely way down. And there comes a time, and this doesn't mean that we don't have females. I co-lead with a female. And uh, we, we have a blast doing ministry, but that doesn't mean that we don't say, you know, there eventually comes a time when we need to start injecting into the men in our church and saying, you know what, pooper, get off the pot is my way of saying it. It's time for this church to have some guys that rise up and they want, and it's not that they're dictatorial. It means that they become servant leaders in the church. Uh, that's a little side note. And uh, so that's why I do this. That's why I, I teach and do the things that I do. It is a book filled with symbols. It's nice to sit down and study the symbols. Try to come up with an answer, but don't get too like ingrained in, in those symbols. Because some of them, you're probably someday when the Lord reveals them to us, you're going to think, oh, I was way off on that one. Uh, so, you know, I remember somebody, that, remember the, the, 
the demons that are, are talked about in the book of Revelation that come out. It says they, they sting people and they've got, it gives a description of them. I remember years ago, somebody said, well, that sounds a lot like one of the helicopters that we've got. And I'm like, oh boy, it's like, you know, so we look at these symbols and we try to put them into modern day experiences. And the reality is, is it's really difficult to do that. So study them, but don't dwell on them. Um, the book, it's a book of prophecy. It's a book with a blessing. Again, it's the victory. I, I loved what Kendall said. It's a book with victory at the beginning, victory at the end. And that's the beauty of it. It is a relevant book. It is a majestic book. It is a universal book and it's a climactic book and that Jesus wins at the end and he has everything brought back together. That is his church. So um, these churches that we're going to talk about today, I don't know if you can see the map real well. They are what is they are churches or would have been churches that are in what is modern day Turkey um, today. There's seven of them and I'm going to give you kind of a review of them. And uh, so the first one is the church in Ephesus. This is called the careless church. Has sound doctrine, but deficient in love. Has an, it has an image of Jesus Christ that he is in control of the ministry, placing the stars where he pleases, meaning the stars are the churches. So God is sovereignly in control of his church. Um, and he gives that image. But... They are great in doctrine, deficient in love. Um, here's where we see their approval. They're a serving church, meaning that they're busy doing the works of the Lord. They look like they're doing everything that they're supposed to be doing. And, and we have a lot of churches like that. that. Now, again, when John gives his description of the churches, when I say that this is the present age, it's the past and the present or can be the present. So as you begin to see these descriptions, understand that these are actually really good descriptions of our church today, churches. Now, where does our church fit? Well, every church is unique and different. You know, I've had, I did this years ago. I asked people, what, where do you think we are currently, our church? Where do you think we fall? And I was amazed at some of the answers. One of them was Ephesus. And I was like, ouch, that kind of hurt because Ephesus, you know, they had some issues. So it's a serving church. It's a sacrificing church. They, the, they labored, meaning they worked until exhaustion. So they were a great church that was, uh, was very much about action. They were a steadfast assembly. They endured persecution. Folks, uh, I will tell you this. The North American church has not even come close to the persecution that is awaiting it. I believe that. Um, we need more than ever to be discipling and equipping and preparing people because there's going to come a time. I really think the church is going to have to come to a place where they rise up and they call themselves the body of Christ. And I think in North America, it has become so simple and easy that we've forgotten. I read a story about, maybe some of you remember this, uh, a woman from Iraq. Right now in Iraq, it's the, one of the fastest growing churches internationally in Iraq. Uh, I'm sorry, in Iran, Iran. And uh, this woman came to the US and uh, came over, I, I forget why, for ministry and eventually said, I'm going back. 
And this is what she said about the North American church. They have succumbed to a satanic lullaby in the North American church. That was good. I was like, ouch. They have succumbed to a satanic lullaby, meaning we're doing the actions, but the heart has been lost and we've forgotten what the church is all about. So they were, uh, they endured persecution. They were a separated people. They were very critical of the genuineness of any visiting minister. They were a suffering people. They were patient in carrying their burdens. Here's their accusation though. Now in every church, there is uh, an accusation. Two churches don't get accused of anything, but only two. So five of them have an accusation. And that is they abandoned their first love, verse four. You've abandoned your first love. You've abandoned that place that you were early in your life, early in your faith walk, you've abandoned it. And you have forgotten the joy of Christ and you got caught up in this church function um, instead of being the church and doing what we're called to be. So that's Ephesus, Smyrna. I think there's so many churches today that taken Christ out of the picture. Yeah. It's it's become a social club. Yeah. Uh, the mainline church right now, and uh, when I say mainline, uh, it's, and unfortunately some of you may come from these traditions, but uh, United Methodism, Presbyterian, uh, the Lutheran Church, um, they statistically they're saying that they're doing a nosedive uh, in, in their constituency. The evangelical church is taking off. The Pentecostals, the Baptists, Southern Baptist uh, uh, denomination, many evangelical churches are taking off. However, there's a problem. Why are those churches taking off? It's because those from the mainline church are going over to the evangelical church. Statistically, however, we have not kept up with population growth and we are losing the battle when it comes to bringing people to Jesus Christ. So the church evangelically is growing, the mainline church is declining, but we're still not getting the masses of our populations. So that means that we are not reaching people. Um, that's a bad statistic for the church. Now, I, I do believe that a day is coming when you're gonna see people flock to the church. Remember what happened at 9-11? What happened to the church? Took off. People were like doom and gloom. They ran to the church. Guess what? That day is yet to come again. And yes, you will, be, you will see people flock to the church. The coronavirus, one of the things I said to some of our denominational leaders was this. We were made for this. And they all just kind of said, yep, we were made for this. This is our moment as a church where we need to rise up and be the church. And a day is coming when I believe that hopefully... <laughs> Depends on your viewpoint. We'll talk about this later. Hopefully we're not here. I don't know. You know, there's other viewpoints. And if we are here, then the church needs to rise up. And we need to be the church because people are going to come flocking back that are thinking, okay, I've lived this life of uh, mediocrity. And now I'm seeing, you know, the, the, the presence of God going around in these difficult times. Smyrna was the poor but rich church. 
um, they, their image of Christ, uh, because of their persecution, he reminds them that they had been there and has conquered death and is the victor. So this church, poor but rich. Their approval, they were persecuted but did not compromise. Their accusation, none. John saw no accusation for this church. Their admonition, don't be afraid because I am in complete control. I've got this handled. And I think we need to remember that even today when we think about where are we going as a church and what is in store for the church. I would tell people, remember this, God's in control. He's got this, you know, and he has something greater for us. Praise to the overcomer. Poverty on earth, riches in heaven. And so that kind of describes that church. So that's one of the churches that doesn't get an accusation. Then there's Pergamum, the heretical church. Sounds familiar. Image of Christ, it reminds the church of his divine judgment. The accusation, they allowed false doctrine to infiltrate their fellowship. How many have seen that? It's always trying to seep in. Um, then their admonition, repent or feel the word of God. It's called that sharp double-edged sword. Uh, the word of God as it comes out. Repent or feel the word of God um, as a sharp double-edged sword. And then there's praise to the overcomer. And he talks about this manna from God. The bread of life, meaning Jesus Christ. The white stone, admission into the presence of Christ. All these things are, uh, are a calling back for the church to come back and repent and change their ways. Um, again, seven churches, only two are go without accusation. So when I say that this is potentially a present moment, I say that because it actually kind of describes the church today, that a majority of our churches have kind of, kind of teetered off center. And so... Who knows? Uh, I'm just saying it seems awful funny that where we're at today, uh, especially in, in North America, where we're at today is, uh, is a place that we really don't want to be. Uh, stop for questions. Any? What was their accusation? Their accusation was they allowed false doctrine. Oh, I was just going to say I was telling my wife, not trying to offend anybody, but that church reminds me of the Catholic Church. Could be, yeah. Stuff that at least I'm seeing, and maybe somebody else is not seeing, just stuff that I'm seeing, some, a lot of that stuff. Yeah. It, um, and even now, um, in Cairo, we have uh, a United Methodist Church that is pastored by um, somebody that would I would call more conservative. Uh, and right now he's given us updates on what's going on within the United Methodist Church and the fact that right now there is a huge divide in the United Methodist Church. And we've asked him, he said, what do you think it's gonna do to your congregation? What's it gonna do to your job? Can you imagine that? If you side on one side of this battle and all of a sudden they say, you don't have a job. Um, it's just, it's amazing. And I, I don't think we always think about all the details that go into this. It's not just, hey, you stink as a pastor, see you later. It's, you've, you've held to a particular view and this church is going to make a decision, pro um, or against. And that might mean you have to go somewhere else. So it's, it's just a devastating time. Um, 
the uh, and other questions. Sorry. The church in Thyatira is the corrupted church. Their image of Christ was the all-seeing God who has the power of divine judgment. We talked about that earlier with the, the blazing eyes, that God of judgment that sees all things. They were a sacrificial church who gave tremendously to others. But their accusation is they tolerated evil. That's hard in the church today. It's hard to still take a stance but still love people, isn't it? You know, and, and so on. It's just one of these these moments in our history where the world that we live in believes that you are you should, because you're a church of love, you should tolerate everything. And the church still has truth that we stand for. And so this church tolerated evil. Um, their admonition was to those that have persevered and not turned their backs on Christ. And then there's a praise to the overcomer. We will live with Christ forever and rule over nations. So they go through these. They're, they're actually, um, as you go through these, you'll notice that there's some other ways of describing. Um, there's another uh, one that I use. It's called the, the, the conflict. Uh, it's C words, and I wish I could remember them all. But uh, each church had three C words. One was conflict, one was character, and I forget what the third one was, but it helps understand the church as you kind of go through it. Um, Sardis, the dying church. Uh, in this description, uh, John saw the seven spirits or the all-seeing, omnipresent Holy Spirit that gives life. There was still hope for Sardis. Um, because there is the seven stars that bring protection to the church. However, their approval, none. There were two churches that got no approval whatsoever. Two churches that did, no accusation. Two churches that got no approval. So now you got three left. You do the math. And uh, the accusation, you're living in the past. You look alive, but you're dead. Um, they were complacent and not watching out for the deceiver. Um, and basically the admonition is wake up. A church that is alive is growing, reproducing, repairing, and has power. So the praise to the overcomer, strength, strengthen what remains because there is still hope. Philadelphia was the other church that had no accusation against them. Um, they were a, a church of holiness, a church of truth. That was the image they, they saw. Um, it states that uh, in this one that there will be uh, doorways that make way for the possibility of ministry. Their approval, they were faithful and true um, to God's word. They were unafraid to bear his name. No accusation. The admonition was, hold on, hold on. This, you know, and that's one of the things I, I hope that we'll continue to preach in the church today. Hold on, you know, in, in the midst of this time that we're living hang on, things are going to eventually come to a close. Praise to the overcomer is eternity in the presence of God. And uh, we begin to see Christ's heavenly citizenship in his new name. So again, this is one of the churches, no accusation. Uh, Laodicea was the self-satisfied church. Um, in this one, the image of Christ is that he is the amen or the truth. Uh, I've always told people for years, be careful when you say amen at the end of your church or end of your prayer, 
the word amen for some means so be it. Um, so when we say amen at the end of our prayer, that's us saying so be it. What I just said, Lord, may come true. And I tell people, you might want to be careful about your prayers before you say that. Years ago, I was in ministry. Uh, our church was growing. And um, I, do, I was getting so overwhelmed in ministry that people became numbers to me. And because we had so many, and my typical MO is more of caring and connecting with people. Well, I was getting to the point where it's like I, I was losing my ability to care for people. So I prayed one day. I said, Lord, I said, please, I don't want to stop caring for people. Please help me learn how to care better for people. And the gates of hell opened up. I never, I'll never forget it. And he didn't come in and say, put his arm around me and pat me on the shoulder and say, I'm here, Randy. Things are going to be easier. He made things more difficult. He hit me with problem after problem after problem. I still remember it was awful. And I finally put up my hands and said, I surrender. I said, maybe I should have been a little bit more careful in my prayer. And that was, I want to care for people, but I don't want to learn it through the school of hard knocks. Um, and that's what happened. It was it was horrendous. So uh, as we begin to look at Laodicea, they have no approval. They were a blind church. Um, they were blind to their own needs and unwilling to face the truth. And this is the wonderful passage of scripture that talks about, you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Well, his description here is being uh, hot was the, that was a good thing, a burning heart, that's what he was looking for, uh, or a cold heart, a refreshing heart. When we drink cold water on a hot day, it's refreshing. He wasn't saying, I want you to be you know, one or the other, he said, I want you to pick, but don't be lukewarm, which was eh, tepid. You're, you're not, you're not doing anything for or against, but you're tepid. You're walking a line. So that's what he wanted them to understand was don't be lukewarm. And unfortunately, that's what we see in the church today. Um, the admonition is realize your wretched condition, repent and come back to me. And that's the importance again. And praise to the other overcomer is if you overcome, you will share in my throne. Um, question. The admonition was accusation was um, Laodicea was blind to its own needs and unwilling to face truth. Any questions? Again, um, I will say if you want the notes, I will send them to you. Um, and if you want me to print them off, I will. Um, however, okay. Um, yeah, I'm. I don't know what your feelings are on passing along paper. So, uh, and I promise I wouldn't lick them. So. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so let's go to, uh, here's the big one, Woo, the rapture. Um, we're going to jump into this right away. Uh, I think sometimes it's good to talk about this to kind of get this, uh, this issue dealt with. Now, the word rapture is not a word found in scripture. It's not. I, uh, I've heard some say the Greek word is raporia, and it's, there's no word for it. Um, it's a Latin word, and it means snatched up. 
Um, it means taken. The word describes the time in which Christ takes his church home. You can go back to uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, somebody said one time, why do the dead in Christ rise first? Well, that's because they're six feet further from heaven than the rest of us. Um, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet our Lord, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Then if you go down to, hang on, I don't know if I got the reference. At that time, I'm not sure what the reference is, so... At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. It's Matthew 24. So, again, we see the same description from Paul, same description uh, from Matthew, uh, his gospel, as there will be this day when God, Jesus Christ, will come and he will take his church home. Um, you know, I pray for that day. I think the, the comedian, I wish I could remember his name, said when the Lord comes and raptures his church, I'm going to grab two unbelievers by the hair of the head and take them with me. Um, not sure that's going to work, but, uh, you know, he, he at least was thinking, I want to try. Um, so what is the rapture? When does the rapture take place? Um, here, here's the dilemma. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Um, the dilemma is, I, a pastor I worked under said this, hope for the best, be prepared for the worst. And that was the best advice I probably could have ever heard on this subject. So let's talk about, there are pretty much four main views on the rapture. One of them is called the pre-tribulation rapture. That is the one that probably most of us are familiar with. If you've read any of Tim LaHaye's material and Jerry Jenkins' That whole series, a fictional series, but that whole series was on the pre-tribulational rapture, meaning they believe the church is gone at the beginning. Now, understand this tribulation period. Daniel is the one that inter introduces us to the tribulation period of seven years. And he gives a pretty vivid description that there's going to be this seven-year segment of time broken into two halves, three and a half years, three and a half years. So when we talk about the tribulation, that's what is being referred to is this seven-year block of time. Pre-tribulationists believe that at the beginning, Jesus is coming and he will take his church and then there will be this seven years that unfold after that. So there's also those that have taught the mid-tribulational rapture. That is not as popular a view anymore, uh, meaning that there will be this three and a half years that is called a false peace. Um, and at the middle, they believe that's when Jesus will return. And then the next three and a half years are doom and gloom. Um, the first three and a half years, some people think that when the Antichrist comes that it's going to be doom and gloom. It's not. It's going to be a false peace. There's going to be a false peace that goes over the entire world. And he will establish that false peace with the Jews. He will establish in many cases with the church. And then in the middle, he's going to turn his back on those people. And then that's when things are going to go nuts. So mid-tribulational rapturist believes that at the middle, he will come and take his church home. There is also those that believe in the post-tribulational rapture, which means it happens at the end. Jesus comes at the end and basically cleans house 
takes his church home first. Um, and there are some that hold to that view. Again, it's not one of the most popular views. Um, there's a fourth view called the pre-wrath rapture of the church, meaning somewhere in that seven-year period, closer to the middle, one side or the next, many believe it's on the latter side, that prior to this wrath, meaning the unfolding, when the Antichrist turns his back on the Jews, sets him his image up in the temple, um, that's when things are going to go completely bonkers. Jesus will return, and at that moment, he will take his church home. And then he will continue to earth, and he will clean house. So that is uh, the pre-wrath rapture of the church. If you want to read on it, there's, um, like I said earlier, you've got Jenkins and LaHaye that write a lot about pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, there's a Robert Van Campen writes about the pre-wrath. This view actually was an early view in the early church. Um, and actually over time, it got kind of superseded by some other views. Well, now it's starting to rise up again that more and more people are saying, you know what? It seems to suggest that the church will go through part of the tribulation period. Um, again, we don't know. Uh, hope for the best. Be prepared for the worst. And doesn't it kind of sound the same as the mid-tribulation? It does. Um, but the mid-tribulational rapture is pretty much like in the middle. Um, so, but it has a lot of similarities to it. But they, the, the pre-wrath group would say that it falls on the other side in that three and a half, latter three and a half years. They just don't know where. Somewhere in there, um, there is judgments that will begin to be unfolded. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that um, sometime this week on what kind of judgments are going to be like spilled on God's creation. So somewhere in there, God's wrath is coming to earth. Jesus Christ is coming. Here's the problem that some have with pre-tribulational rapture is that the Bible says that, that the church will be brought up or snatched up and will meet Jesus in the air. But the Bible says that Jesus doesn't come till later. When he's coming to earth, he continues to earth and battles Satan and takes over the world, leading up to what some would call this thousand-year reign. So there's a there's a problem, and there there's some have said, well, Jesus is coming, snatches his church up, and um, rescues his church, but continues to come. Continue. It's kind of like it's kind of weird, um, but they say he continues or waits, and then he he finishes. Um, so. There's some confusion there. So what some have leaned towards with the pre-wrath is they've said, as Jesus is coming, he rescues his church and continues. Um, yes? One question, I guess, is, to me, there seems to be some time where the church is going to suffer. We're going to suffer. And if we go before the rapture takes place, how are we going to go through the suffering that it says in here? Seems like we're going to suffer as a church. We're going to be persecuted, whatever it is, killed, robbers. I mean, worse. Way worse. Way worse. Oh yeah. And I guess, I guess my question is, um, how would that pre-tribulation work if we're not suffering, like the Bible says that the church is going to suffer? Yeah, and that's one of the questions that 
they have to try and answer is how do you explain that? How do you explain it seems to suggest the scriptures that the church will go through suffering, persecution. But the question is, is to what degree? And like I just heard, some have said, well, we're going through that now, so maybe that's it. And then others have said, no, 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 it's going to be worse. And, you know, so the answer is, is we just don't know. Um, and I always say, you know what, regardless, we have to be prepared because I still believe that um, let's just say the church doesn't and they are caught up. Um, to me, that leaves God's creation kind of like floundering. Um, so, uh, and some of the those that are pre-tribulationists would answer it as in those that maybe didn't have their heart right with the Lord that are left behind, left behind, they become the evangelists on earth because it says that people will still come to Christ, um, but it's going to be with their lives, they'll come to Christ and come to salvation. Um, but there's the other side that seems to suggest that there is going to be persecution and that the church will go through that persecution and we still are going to be the agents of grace on earth. So there's both sides. It just depends on who becomes God's agents on earth. And that's, that is the question that constantly is juggled. And what does that look like? Again, I would say, be prepared, you know, hope for the best, be prepared for the worst, um, that we might have to go through that. And thus the reason church needs to be more and more and more prepared for that day in which these things could unfold. Um, so that's that's the tribulation issue. Nobody's come up with an answer. I know. That's like taking a drink out of a fire hydrant right there. So, uh, you know, and I, I know there's folks that, like I said, when I teach this, I let people take the material and study and if you could ever find, if you're looking for resources, um, there's uh, there's books out there. There's one that's called, I think it's called the Three Views. It only talk, touches on three, the Three Views of the of the Rapture or the Rapture Question. There's another one out there. I just found it that talks about the Four Views, including pre wrath. Um, and basically, it has four different authors that will talk about their particular bent, and then the other authors will critique it. So you get a chance to read through it, and it's like you can say, hmm, that makes sense. Then you go to the next guy. Oh, that makes sense. Then you go to the next guy. Crud, this makes sense. So everybody goes back to the scriptures. Some interpretation of the scriptures is a stretch. Um, you know, there's certain things that I, I really think that the, we don't look at the scriptures literally enough. Um, if you go back to Matthew 24, I think Matthew 24 and 25 really lays out the book of Revelation. It was kind of the prelude to the book of Revelation. Jesus gave it to us. And if you go into Matthew 24 and 5, then go into like Revelation 6, you see the sequence that goes back and forth. And it's like, oh, maybe Jesus gave us the outline. And then John just expounded on it a few years later. So that's the beauty of it. Oh, I see it. Questions? <gasps> I know. Four more days of this. Hang on. I got to go back and take a nap. Um, so, yes, Matthew 24, if you're really looking for where Jesus talked about the rapture or the, the taking his church home, 
Um, you can see it in the other Gospels as well, Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wrote the, the, the Corinthians and talked about this taking the church home. Um, again, if you want to, I, I really think that the Old Testament is really already given us a lot of what the New Testament talks about. I go back to Noah and the flood. Noah and the flood, did, did God take Noah out of the calamity? No. But he, he gave them grace. Um, and some people have said to me, well, let's talk about the people that were around in that day and age. Because there's a great illustration of the ark. And it says that when God closed the door, what was Jesus known as? The gate to the sheep, the doorway. So there's a wonderful messianic description right there of the ark. He closed the door. Then some people have said to me, well, Randy, what if some of those people would have repented? Well, the Bible says that they had come to complete evil that there was no turning back. Which, if you look at that description, it's hard for me to fathom that anybody could come to a place where there is no turning back. But the Bible seems to describe that people do come to a place where they are completely evil. And so when God wiped out the earth, he kept the righteous remnant. And so the same is true when we look into the, uh, the end times, that yes, did God save Noah and his family? You bet he did. But did he have make them go through the calamity? Yep, he did. That seems to be consistent throughout the scriptures and in the New Testament. That Back to your statement, that there, there seems to be something that says we have to go through something. What that is, I don't know. I, I wish I had a better, better handle on it. Um, you know, I wish I had a time machine, honestly, but, you know, with my luck, I would pick the wrong date and everybody would be gone and, and sitting there picking my nose. And, what happened? So, you know, you, who knows? It's just, um, so those are some passages to describe that. Um, if you, uh, as we go through this, you'll notice that there's just so many, so many nuances um, I, I would love to be able to go in verse by verse, but because of our time, I'm really not going to be able to do that. So let me do this. Um, I want to go down um, to in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it for you. I think this is really profound. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Some of you probably know this passage. And the train of his robe filled the temple. This is the greatest scriptural description of worship that there is. Um, above him were seraphs or angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, sometimes we look at that and I say, oh, that's what the angels were singing. They weren't singing. They were calling because the song had yet to be sung. Um, and that song happens in the book of Revelation. Then they sing. Here they're calling. So, um, and we also see that uh, it, when Jesus was born, remember the angels came to the shepherds? They didn't sing. They said. But the day is coming when we're going to see this song that's going to come up, and the song will finally be revealed to all of creation. Um, and so if you go to, oh, sorry, this is where the shepherds came. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels praising God and saying. So they're still, exactly. But the day is coming when they will sing. Um, questions? Oh, I just want to 
uh, say something. I had a question before about the raps, about the trumpet. Yeah. It's not a trumpet that you would um, trumpet have played in a band or something here. It's the shofar. And I think as Christians, we need to learn that sound and maybe blow the shofar more to get familiar with that sound. So when Christ does come back, whatever form it is, we'll know that sound right. of the shofar. So I think as Christians, we need to get familiar with that sound of the shofar. It's not like a trumpet that we play on that. That's a, that's yeah. it. It's a lot lower. I used to. Yeah. Um, I had a small one because years ago, we did, uh, anybody ever do Marketplace 29AD yeah, as a VBS? Yeah. We did that. It's my favorite. It's probably one of the best I've ever done. Um, and we had a shofar. I, I remember I blew it, and I actually blew my eyeballs out of my head. Um, so I was doing it wrong. I know. I just, 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 uh, real early on, you had a Zephaniah, uh, or Zachariah from the Seven Spirits uh, reference. What was that reference, Zachariah? Very beginning, Seven Spirits of Fire. Yep. Yeah, Zachariah, what? Hang on. By the time I get the outline, I'll forget. <coughs> four? Is that right? Four? Yes. Okay. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> and another thing is, is that the lampstands are not a lamp like we think of it's menorah. Menorah, yeah. It's the menorah. That we know. Individualize, so we need to visualize when we see the seven lampstands. We need to visualize them in the rock. And think too that the Bible also tells us that the sevenfold spirit rested on Jesus Christ, um, so he was filled with that. Yeah, seven descriptions of, of the Holy Spirit resting. Um, we only got about four minutes, so if you have other questions? I know we need to wrap up with if there's any announcements or anything. Tomorrow, um, we're going to get into, um, hang on. Is there something that we should read before tomorrow that would help us? If you want to get into chapter four, chapter four. yeah, and probably even chapter four, five, and six, that would be fine. Um, we're going to begin with chapter four, uh, where we begin to see worship that takes place in heaven. Um, we're also going to talk about some of the views uh, they call them the preterist the huge uh, historicist the futurist idealist views and these are where scholars tend to fall um, this help this will help explain a little bit about the book of revelation some people feel it's already taken place some people feel like we're in it some people say no nope, it's future and then some are saying eh, you know wherever it's gonna fall you know and so we're gonna talk about that to, to beginning tomorrow um, we'll also talk about the seven sealed scroll uh, that's where we see the seal judgments and we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like and what does that mean for us when God opens up the seal and who is it that can open the, se the seals uh, we'll talk a little bit about that so um, if you want to read those three chapters I think that would be good and um, if you have questions that you think about email me I'll do the best I can to get back with you um, kind of go from there now you can take a deep breath and not much to think about no not at all